0: was, uh, I just felt a little bit faint and I just had a feeling in myself. I didn't really experience pain, um, but I didn't feel as though I was comfortable. I went to see my GP. Uh, He gave me an ECG. As soon as he did the ECG, he asked me, he said, "Um, what's, what's my wife doing today? And I said, she's at home. He said, ring her up. I want her to take you straight to Bankstown Hospital. To have an angiogram, they cut a uh, cut into your, an artery in your leg and put a, a monitor, a cameras up through your arteries to determine whether you have any blocked arteries. And the cardiologist uh, came out and said, uh, unfortunately, you're all set for open heart surgery. He said you've got, I actually had four major arteries that were blocked, uh, three of which was in excess of 90%. When I woke up and was just surrounded by bright lights, you had the monitor pinging away so you knew you were still alive. But I do remember um, my daughter saying to me, uh, uh, how do you feel? And I think I, my comment was, I wish I was dead.
1: Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Ellen Lee Today, I'll look at what happens to you after you leave the intensive care unit.
0: Hi, I'm Eric and uh, I survived a uh, triple bypass operation.
1: Talk me through what a triple bypass surgery actually is. What do they do?
0: Uh, they actually open up your chest cavity. So they actually saw your, your rib cage from your, from your sternum, down to your sternum, from your throat down to your sternum. And they actually open up your rib cage so that it exposes your heart. Then they harvest from your arteries in your leg. And then they actually sew them onto where the blockages are. So it's actually uh, literally what it says: is bypass. It's, it's like a, you've got a roadblock on a road, and you go around the roadblock, and that's exactly what they do.
1: As you can imagine, soaring through your chest cavity is not the type of procedure you recover from quickly. Heart bypass surgery automatically relegates you to the intensive care unit for a couple of days after surgery. So doctors and nurses can monitor your heart and manage potential complications.
0: Upon waking, I had a respirator down my throat, and I was waking up and choking because they were, and they were trying to get this respirator out of my, out of my throat. So that was my first impression. I thought I was. I was going to choke to death before I woke up. Um, after that, I, you're, uh, you've got you know, tubes coming out of you in many orifices, and um, but you're very heavily drugged, so you were drifting in and out of consciousness. Basically, my wife was there beside me; oh, she had a horrified look on her face. So I did, but um, that first night, I must have woken up on at least half a dozen occasions, staring at a bright light at the nurse's station, surrounded by alien noises and yeah, it was, um, it was scary.
1: Intensive care, or ICU, is not the best place to recover from major surgery. It's noisy, it's bright, it's uncomfortable and for many people this can be a very traumatic experience. Until recently what happened once you left the ICU was not discussed so long as you were alive and stabilized
2: Interestingly when I uh, I did my masters in the late 90s and at that point in time there was no discussion about survivors there was no discussion about how we could optimize their function it was really all about survival you know and that that, that was that was sufficient
1: Previously, the stats hospitals were interested in were how many people died in intensive care. Today, 90% of patients who are admitted to ICU will survive. Associate Professor Sue Burney is a researcher and manager of the physiotherapy department at Austin Health in Melbourne. Sue helps rehabilitate patients who have been in intensive care.
2: Prior to that, and certainly all of the research in the 90s, The main outcome of that research was whether the patient was alive at 28 days or at 90 days. It never looked at the quality of survival. And I think what we now realise is that whilst mortality is obviously an important outcome, the
1: quality of that life is also important. But as researchers are now discovering, a patient's journey doesn't end when they leave the intensive care unit. As you heard, it can be a traumatic experience that can affect the patient's quality of life for months or even years after they have left hospital. Post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, is the name given to a suite of symptoms you can experience after discharge from ICU. Doug Elliott is a professor of nursing at the University of Technology, Sydney.
3: It's a constellation of symptoms that people who survive intensive care may have. And so it looks at three major areas one around their physical function during their recovery and rehabilitation from ICU, also any mental health issues, particularly around anxiety or acute stress or post traumatic stress or depression, and also an area of cognitive function or dysfunction that is. Probably the least researched at this stage.
1: Physical function is measured by how long people can stand and walk independently. This is something that's pretty easy to test. Among the ICU population, many will become weak because of a loss of muscle mass, making things like walking difficult. Mental health includes anxiety, depression, stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. These issues can persist years after discharge from ICU. Finally, cognitive function. ICU patients can be affected by things like memory and focus, with many people unable to go back to their previous jobs. But one thing that is a bit difficult to pinpoint in these situations is whether it's the illness itself or the experience of being in ICU that creates PICS.
3: These things are not just separate entities they, they come across a whole range of things so one of the one of the real I think um, challenges for us as researchers and practitioners is in this area is that every patient is slightly different in terms of what the the function the dysfunction might be.
1: Interestingly it doesn't matter whether you are in ICU for one day or one week people at both ends of the spectrum can suffer from PICS.
3: Some of the, the small work that we've been doing here in Sydney is that even though one sample was relatively not that sick, so they had a low severity of illness to get into ICU, they were not mechanically ventilated for a long period of time, they weren't in ICU for that longer period, so around two days or so, so their exposure to both the illness and the environment of ICU was, was relatively low. They still had evidence of anxiety, of post-traumatic stress, of depression.
1: Eric was in intensive care for around 36 hours following his bypass surgery and spent the following week in hospital.
0: One morning I I woke up at early 5. I'm normally an early riser and I wake up early 4.30 or 5. So I decided to go for a walk. I couldn't sleep so I decided to go for a walk. And as I was walking through the ward... um, the professor for the cardio unit came walking through and one of the, the uh, nurses said, oh, this is Mr Flynn, this is Professor so-and-so, and he just took one look at me and said, oh, he's all right, he's moving about, and kept on going. So, <laughs> I, su- I assume that's reassuring.
1: <laughs> when Eric was eventually sent home, he was given a booklet with walking goals to help his physical recovery.
0: They gave us a booklet, prior to the operations, uh, post-op, at, at what stage I should be at, at, at uh, like on a weekly basis, and they uh, they, they encourage you to, that you should, by this stage, you should be able to do X amount of kilometres walking. By this stage, you should be doing such and such, which is a bit of a generalisation, um, but whether that was a, the reason behind that was to give, give me an objective to aim for, which I tried to achieve yeah.
1: and physically Eric did pretty well. he achieved his walking goals, but there were other things that he struggled with. Eric was self- employed and noticed the difference between what he could do before surgery and after surgery.
0: somehow I do think that you've, that the I don't know whether it's the anesthetic or what it is but i I felt I couldn't concentrate as much i'd be I'd be trying to do quotes and I'd be trying to do bookwork and and I'd, I would lose, I just wouldn't be able to concentrate. And that took quite some time to get back to it. I, I couldn't tell you exactly the figures of how long it would, but I, that was one of the after-effects of it.
1: Eric had his bypass surgery four years ago, and he thinks it took him about 12 months to get back to something resembling normal. And it's only now that he recognises he might have suffered from depression.
0: My GP was very aware of it. He kept on making reference to whether I was suffering any depression. I don't think that I suffered depression, but in hindsight, I look back on it now and I think that maybe there were times when I, I most probably would have questioned it. Yeah, being a male, it's the male problem, isn't it? You say, no, I'm tough, I, I, don't, I can overcome that. But In hindsight now, I look back on several times when I thought that I might have been.
1: Doug Elliott from UTS says in Australia there's no way of getting an accurate picture of how many people suffer from PICS-like symptoms because it's hard to recruit patients for research. Of the patients that have been part of his studies, about two-thirds will suffer depression, which is comparable to overseas studies.
3: We know about the people who are in our studies. So the people who are involved in the study, potentially 30 or 40 per cent, with mental health issues. There will be a, a proportion, um, some work that I, uh, I looked at recently um, and some of our own work is around maybe 10 to 15% who might have some cognitive dysfunction.
1: In most cases, it's up to the GP to pick up on these things. Eric Flynn again.
0: I, I had to go back to my GP on about the 6th uh, or 7th week And then back again, three-monthly. And I went and saw my cardiologist at about a six-monthly period and then a 12-monthly period after that. But um, They all were very happy with my progress after the operation, so they were quite dismissive for want of a better description. They said, oh, you're all right.
1: Eric said the way he got through life after intensive care and bypass surgery was by talking to people he knew who had also gone through the procedure.
0: I I I'd still think that talking to people who have been through the process, doctors tend to be a little bit dismissive. And I used to I used to say to um, about my GP, I said he's all right. He's never had it done to himself yet, and that's the, that's the fact of the matter is that these doctors, they have seen the and they've they've treated patients, but none of them ever had to experience it. So when I when I did speak to people who had been through the procedure, then they were able to relate to me and I'd say oh cuz you get phantom pains and and you and you question it all the time you go oh you know, you know is this should be happening and um and then I when I'd mentioned it to other people that had been through the procedure and they'd say oh yeah yeah you yeah, get that you know and don't worry about that that's all right you know you're still alive <laughs>
1: Eric is one of the lucky ones when it comes to ICU. To put it in his own words, he's back firing on all cylinders four years later. But it's the opposite for Nancy Andrews, an artist and college professor based in Maine in the United States. Nancy has a genetic disorder called Marfan syndrome that affects the aorta in her heart. She ended up having an aneurysm because of it and had a mammoth 30-hour surgery to fix her heart
4: they were repairing the aorta. So the, the aneurysm was about 18 inches in total. So they replaced or really actually put a Dacron tube inside my original aorta, about 18 inches of it, and reattached vessels to that, like that go to your kidneys and your spine. In order to do that, they have to put you on a heart-lung machine. And then there's portion of the surgery where they have to stop blood flow altogether by cooling you down at least 20 degrees less than your normal body temperature so that basically everything stops. Yeah, so that it's sort of like the, the mother of all cardiovascular <laughs> surgeries.
1: Nancy was in intensive care for a couple of weeks. During the surgery, part of her lung had been twisted, so she had to go back under the knife again. After that, she started to improve, but she experienced traumatic delirium.
4: What's happening for most people, most people with delirium are having very negative hallucinations that they believe to be real. It's kind of almost like a a temporary
1: schizophrenia. Do you mind telling us a little bit more? Could you give an example of one of them?
4: I don't know if you have this expression in Australia, but fly-by-night medical, like corner store kind of medical facility where they really didn't know what they were doing. And, you know, it was not uh, a reputable operation. They were, had me, you know, there almost as a prisoner and all sorts of bad things were happening. And I also thought there at some point that I was in the hospital, but that the hospital had this, uh, like I had a whole conspiracy theory going that the hospital contained a pornography ring that was photographing patients and then putting that on the internet um yeah I could go on yeah
1: wow when Nancy got home she was extremely weak and basic tasks were tiring but it became apparent that this was the least of her worries
4: but I began during that recovery period which was several months to realize um you know I was having physical therapy and whatnot but I began to realize that, um, I was having a lot of anxiety, sudden anxiety that was brought on by things that didn't really have any particular meaning to me, but all of a sudden I would feel totally panicked if someone made the sound of a helicopter, or if I saw a movie with a helicopter, I couldn't understand why. And so I spoke to my doctor about it and, uh, He almost immediately, like on a phone call, when I called and I said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm having this kind of anxiety that is triggered by things that I don't really understand why. And he said, well, I think you probably have post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's have you see a psychiatrist and see what they have to say. And that they came up with the same diagnosis.
1: It took Nancy nine months to recover and get back to work. And even then, she still struggled daily. Delirium is a big part of why it took her so long to recover as it's one of the major contributors to cognitive and psychological impairment among post-ICU patients. Sue Burney from Austin Health in Melbourne says it's something they try and manage among ICU patients here.
2: There are certain things that, that we do that can make delirium better or worse and if we can reduce the amount of time patients spend in delirium then we can improve their cognitive outcomes in the longer term. And the challenge is that the, so there is medications that can help, but part of it is, is the measurement and the, is, and the recognition that a patient actually has delirium that's really important as well.
1: One solution to help intensive care patients is to set up follow-up clinics. There are very few in Australia, but they are starting to emerge overseas.
2: Certainly in the US, And in Europe, post-intensive care follow-up clinics are starting to emerge where people are followed up for specific issues. You know, you might see a psychologist for your cognitive issues. You might be referred to a physiotherapist for your physical issues. They're not very common in Australia yet, but they're more common in the US and Europe. And this may be some way that we
1: can try and improve outcomes for survivors of critical illness. The Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society, or ANZICS, says they are aware of PICS, but that follow-up programs are run at the discretion of the hospital. Dr Mark Ziegenzus is the president of ANZICS.
5: Not all ICUs, but um, some ICUs have got ICU follow-up programs. Um, Invariably, these programs are run by intensivists uh, without funding or support and can only really be done if you have the staff available. So we sometimes, for example, the unit that I work, we, we had planned for regular six-month follow-ups with our ICU patients, asking them about their experience, asking them about um, how they were affected psychologically by their ICU stay. However, as I say, because these things are unfunded, very often it's difficult to actually realize these
1: things. It's not just up to hospitals to recognise something is wrong. Just because someone can walk out the door of the intensive care unit doesn't mean they are fully recovered. If you know someone who has been through a critical illness, you can help by giving them support during their long recovery. It's really difficult for the patients
2: because they feel, you know, they're made to feel that they should be grateful not by the healthcare professionals, but by society, you know, their friends will say, oh, you're so lucky to have got through that. You know, I know someone who didn't survive. And and so they have these mixed emotions of feeling lucky to survive, but also feeling conflicted because they can't do the things that they used to do and they can't remember the things that they used to do. And they can't do things like managing their finances in a way that they could before. And they can't go and play with their grandchildren in the way that they did before. And, and so it's, uh, it's a very conflicting time for survivors of critical illness, and, 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 it's, and it's hard. It's very hard for them.
1: Recovery is something Nancy feels very strongly about.
4: Physically, I'll never recover. I mean, it's kind of like being in a huge car accident. It was done purposely, but, you know, once your whole body's sort of taken apart and put back together, you're not exactly ever going to be the same but I'm in pretty good shape. I think that that cognitive and psychological stuff takes much, much longer, and that's the part that I feel like we don't really give people that much space for.
1: It is truly amazing that we are able to save the lives of so many in our society, but we need to think about what the quality of that survival is. Eric, for one, is grateful for what intensive care did for him, bright lights and suffocating respirators notwithstanding.
0: In fact, my GP said to me uh, a couple of weeks after the operation when I went back to him, he said, "He said you would have gone out for a bike ride on on the Sunday, which I would have." And he said, "You would have dropped dead had we not got you into hospital at that time." I, I I am well aware of the fact that yeah, the, I most probably would have. would have have kept on training until such time as I would have had a massive heart attack and I would have died. It's good to be alive, that's all.
1: (laughs) You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Would you consider video games a sport? Video gaming has copped a lot of flack over the years for its sedentary practice, realistic portrayal of violence and the potential to become addictive. But by brushing it off as a freaks and geeks hobby, are we missing out on something? A group of researchers from the University of Technology, Sydney, are looking into how the development of fine motor skills among video gamers could be transferred into other settings like surgical practice and aviation. Jake Morecambe has the story.
6: What's your favourite map that you remember from the first Counter-Strike? It'd be the the original D-Dust 2. What's that? Uh, It's kind of like a a desert-style map terrain with various buildings and scaffolds kind of throughout it all.
5: This is Matthew Plewis.
6: And I'm an honours student at the University of Newcastle.
5: Matthew did his thesis on the performance indicators of eSport athletes. And what does this mean? Well, it has to do with video games. (laughs) And in this case, he was using the game Counter-Strike as a case study.
6: Each team has five players. Normally it's subdivided into two teams: terrorists and counter-terrorists. I have eyes on the enemy. Um, the terrorists will have a bomb and they'll need to try and plant it at two sites, A or B. The bomb has been planted. Whereas the role of the counter-terrorists is trying not to let them actually plant the bomb, and if they do, defuse it within the time.
0: Let's get this done.
5: What do you think makes a good Counter Strike player? I think they really need to have
6: very good game sense to anticipate where they can be. If you look at it simply it's just get good at coordinating it really but some of the most professional players have got like thousands of hours within like Counter-Strike for example. I think it's just doing it again and again the way that you need to move about and manipulate the keys and mouse together kind of is the result of just practice really.
5: And for some practice makes perfect. Enter the world of professional video gaming. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the seventh IESF World Championship here in Seoul, South Korea. My name is Rapid, joining me. Alright, so let me paint a picture for you. Say you're watching the Australian Open. Things are tense, the crowd's into it, the commentary team are going off. Well, in esports, also known as professional video gaming, it's pretty much the same. about this jungle situation. Phoenix is going to walk right into that stun. So much damage there. We could see terrorists try to get in there. Blocks the body, slashes, forces out a flash. Great positioning. And even a flash there from Apple being... So what you're listening to now is a preliminary match in the IESF 7th World Championship. IESF is the International Esports Federation. Pretty much the big leagues of pro video gaming. The competitors are playing a game called League of Legends, which is where you fight as a champion with a team and go around and secure towers and zones so that your team wins. And seeing as this is only a preliminary match, you might be like, oh well, what's the point? Why don't they just play this at home? Well, these pro gamers are in it for a reason.
6: So the whole prize pool itself was 18 million. Where where first place took home six million between five. That's right. Eighteen
5: million dollars. This was the prize pool at a tournament last year in South Korea for Dota players. Dota is a game similar to League of Legends.
6: Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Where's all this money coming from? It's it's just all the sponsors and major brands like Red Bull, even traditional sports, even football clubs now, are even Really? Yeah, it's crazy how much the prize pool is growing. Like, in 2014, the total prize pool for the whole year was 35 mil.
5: This prize pool was across a number of different games
6: in the South Korean tournament. Last year, in 2015, that was up to 72 mil. Um, And then this year, for 26 seed, it's already exceeded over 100 million. The biggest one was uh, the Dota 2 tournament over in Korea, where it filled a stadium, the largest stadium with 150,000 people. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and it's kind of just like a sports game. Like They're all watching a game of Dota. Yeah, so it just keeps growing.
4: <iances>
5: Sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me, playing video games full-time and earning some decent money out of it. But if you watch these players, it's... Fascinating, their focus, their quickness in game. I don't think in any way would I be able to keep up with them. So, what is it that makes these pro video gamers so good?
7: We don't know exactly what they are learning, but we know what they are very good at. And what we can see is that they have exceptional fine motor control. If you would compare them to a reference population.
5: This is Job Fransen, a lecturer in sport and exercise science at the University of Technology, Sydney. He was working with Matthew on his honours research.
7: We are very good at, or relatively fast, at reacting to one single stimulus. You know, if the light goes green, I can push the accelerator in my car really quickly, but if there's a green light and an orange light and a red light and a blue light and an arrow and an arrow here and there's a police officer over there trying to organise traffic, then we become perplexed. You know, we no longer know what to do, but they are very good at discerning which stimulus is relevant
5: and which of the responses is most appropriate. So Counter-Strike is essentially a first person shooter. So you've got the person positioned, so you see their arms and they're holding the gun. Run me through when you're watching this. So when I watch experts play it, the the thing that surprises me most
7: is the stability within their behavior. So they are so consistent and meticulous. For example, they are able to predict where enemies are going to appear on screen. Before they've even appeared, they have huge domain-specific knowledge of the maps in which they run around, the the virtual worlds, and they already know this is where an enemy is going to appear. This is where an enemy is likely to appear. If they're not here, then they might be there. When you look at the mouse cursor, for example, for an expert player, it is very stable, centered in the middle of the screen, and it only moves and moves really quickly and really accurately when they're trying to aim at something else, and then it comes back to the center of the screen and, and it it's really impressive
5: to watch those players play Do you think that they're getting so good at it just because they're doing it so much?
7: It's the chick or the egg question we've, we've always been asking ourselves are they so good within those particular characteristics because they do it a lot or were they pre-selected because they have this innate ability and that's what we're trying to figure out now, have they been training this particular characteristic or this particular property very often and repetitively How are you monitoring what they're doing? They come into our university building. We set them up in a separate room. They have a big screen in front of them. We run them through our testing protocol, and part of that testing protocol is that they play two bouts of 15 minutes within their game, and we put some eye-tracking gear on them and look where are they looking while they are playing.
5: This is something very interesting um, that we're looking at at the moment. Right. Do you think that's why they call it eSports? Because it like very closely resembles how a sporting player might get good at a certain activity, and then now with this whole arena of people going to play professionally... Do you think that's why it's called e-sports? I think the reason
7: why they call it e-sports is because they see the parallel with other sports. If you take archery, for example, everyone would agree that archery is a sport, although the physical activity component is very limited. You can be an obese individual and be an archer. You can be an obese individual and be a gamer. Obesity has no influence in your gaming performance. I do a lot of research on how gross motor coordination affects your ability to play a particular sport. So what, what is that, the gross motor skills? Like what? So your gross motor skills are basically when you use large musculature or large sets of muscles. So, for example, if I would do a push-up, that would be an example of something that requires gross motor skills. If I would be knitting a sweater, that would be using fine musculature okay. or a, would be a fine motor skill and I saw the biggest example of the fact that it has no influence on esports the other day while well, I was watching a competition and the, the candidates were introducing themselves and they made some sort of move, you know, when their name was being called and you could see that they were moving so awkwardly <laughs> and there was absolutely if, if they would have been assessed on their gross motor skill competence, it would probably be relatively poor if we, we would compare it with the normative population but I knew from our research that their fine motor control and their fine motor skills was were exceptional. What is the point of the research? Is it to relay it back to physical activity? If we understand within a very close discipline like esports how expertise and excellence emerges over time, we can transfer that across to other disciplines where we can say we have to train someone to use a very particular type of computer that needs fine motor control to make a particular incision here or there and the same goes for if we're talking about some pilots that need to combine gross and fine motor skills while they're flying a plane, we might be able to transfer some of the knowledge that we
5: get from eSports across to there I like it, it's kind of like the brains is coming back in, like the brains versus brawn, you know? The revenge of the nerds, that's what
4: it is <laughs> yeah, Pretty much yeah.
1: Jake Morecambe ending that story If you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard today head to 2scr.com forward slash thinkhealth If you have any questions after today's show, go and see your GP. This is the last Think Health for 2016. Make sure you subscribe so you'll be the first to know when we're back next year. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney, Faculty of Health and 2SER. I'm Ellen Liebeder and on behalf of the entire Think Health team, happy holidays.